Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 269 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have regular contributor, one of our premier environmental law attorneys in the United States, and he's the director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals, attorney Michael Harris. We have a great conversation about hunting revenue and national monuments and bison, monkeys taking selfies, It's uh, fascinating and compelling, as always. Attorney Michael Harris on the program today. We also have an EW essay by yours truly, titled Naruto. We have two Indian morality tales, one about compassion and the other one about an elephant as a companion, read by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis. We also have a poem titled Knuckle. And of course, as is always the case, all of this will be infused with the energy of several wonderful tunes. Let's get to it. Episode 269 of Troubadours and... Rock on Tours. Better than cream cheese and bagels. Better than honey on bread. Better than champagne and pretzels. Better than breakfast in bed. Better than chili, rellenos. Better than chocolate eclairs. Better than hot house tomatoes, better than fresh Bartlett pears, better than dining a la carte, or sampling gastronomic art, better than anything except being in love. Better than making a million, better than being a king, better than oil wells and gold mines, better than pastures of green, better than finding a horseshoe, better than losing your head, better than anything ever thought of, better than anything ever said, better than singing right out loud, or being spotted in a crowd, better than anything except being Popcorn, better than 
rides on the midway Better than seals blowing horns Better than men shot from cannons Better than fresh ears of corn Better than balancing on the wire Or watching tigers jump through Fireflies after dark Better than anything Except being in love Love, 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 love Better way The temperament of a good person Is defined by what? Or should I instead Pose the question as What is a good temperament For a person? I don't really know anymore exactly what my temperament is. I know I have a temper. I know that the way climate change is affecting the weather patterns of the Northeast depresses me. Soggy, cloudy, chilly, damp, cold, no sun. Am I just an indulgent Western world whiner waiting for a better run? When, objectively, compared to many, I certainly got some of the good life. I like the way Sinatra sings a song. Back to my human dilemma regarding temperament. I wonder how mine relates to that of an ape. The ape Naruto, in particular, he had his fifteen minutes of fame because of the jovial selfies he took. They were shared internationally. Do you remember? Is he genuinely happier than me? Is it because he is less intelligent? Or maybe that is specious of me to think and say. I'm not really sure about much, but for the sense that as of late, I am finding it difficult to matriculate the machinations and tendencies of my life day to day, I would like to find inside me a better way. And I could sure use the sun to come out high in the sky and stay.
Michael Harris, is that you? Hi, E.W., how are you? Good. Thanks for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours yet again. Thank you for having me. Regular contributor, uh, environmental law attorney, for those who didn't uh, know that. He's the director of the Wildlife Law Program for the organization Friends of Animals. And, um, again, a regular contributor on the program. Uh yeah, we have some stuff to talk about. I, You know, one thing that after our last conversation occurred, you might want to start there. Uh, you, I mean, you you uh, helped to save the lives of some bison in Yellowstone, didn't you? Oh, that's right. When we were talking about that um, last time we spoke, we were in court trying to challenge a decision by the federal government uh, not to extend further protections to the 3,500 or so remaining, really remaining in the, anywhere in the country as genetically pure as those bison are up there in Yellowstone. And yeah, we had some success. We won uh, in late January. The court ruled in our favor. And, and um, we're now hoping that the federal government will go back and make a more confident decision. That's going cool. home. That's great. It was, it was the same day we were talking about it. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, everyone's really excited. And no more than the people, and you guys should look this up, your viewers should look this up, uh, their group called the Buffalo Field Campaign um, in West Yellowstone, Montana. These people are incredible. Actually, I took my son up there over spring break in March. We drove up there. It's still winter, by the way, in that part of the country. <laughs> and... Um, uh, we did some backpacking and we did some snowshoeing in and we checked out wild bison and we met with these folks who are, uh, you know, they're just amazing, like Grizzly Adam type people who do nothing but go out and protect bison all winter long to make sure they don't get shot. And um, they're thrilled. And I mean, they put so much work in, so I'm really happy for them. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's important work. It's part. We've talked about this in the past. It's really part of uh, the the heritage of this continent, and thus, if we consider ourselves American, uh, then part of our heritage. I agree, and you know, I, I've talked and probably railed about this on your show many of a time, but the government, the federal government in particular, likes to make us all believe we have this wild heritage. You know, we, we call bison our national mammal. We talk about the greatness of our national parks. We talk about the protection of grizzly bears and bald eagles. But it's so much of a facade. If you go out there and you actually look at what they're doing and how they manage these animals, it's like, a, it's like a national zoo out there, frankly. Really? Like a zoo? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, how can you say that keeping genetically pure bison as our national mammal is an important uh, and cultural um, obligation and then shoot them to where there's only 2,000 to 3,000 of them left? I mean, it makes no sense. I put this in context of commercialization of animals. If you told a farmer or you told a rancher that they could only keep 2,000 breedable cattle forever and that, they're in, and that they have to feed the nation with those, it would, they would go, they'd laugh at you. They would say we would have disease, we'd have inbreeding, we'd have genetic deterioration. 
but with wildlife, uh, it's okay. And I guess the rationale is, or the the pressure comes from the commercialized uh, um, livestock industry, doesn't it? To keep the bison in small numbers. Almost with all animals that are in the wild, we see that as the primary reason that they're treating these these animals like this. The ranchers in Montana don't like the bison migrating out of the park in the winter and competing with cattle for, you know, grass and for for forage. And so they want them shot. It's crazy. It's almost like anything that's wild and does its own thing has to be marginalized in this world, right? (laughs) It, It really is. I mean, of course, you know, there are people out there who do um, work on human rights, and they would say that's the same with people. That's right? what I mean, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if they can't, if they're not producing for those people who are making the money, then marginalize them. Right. Right. Oh my lord, we found a commonality or a parallel, a bad trend. <laughs> oh, Michael. So th- I good- used to do all of those environmental justice human rights cases, and I realized, you know, back you know ten years ago now. There's even a more, if that's possible, or at least as much marginalized group of species out there than than humans are. And that's all these animals that are just trying to live a meaningful life. Well, yeah, of course, because they're they're not considered, since they're non-human, as important. So, of course, they'll be marginalized even more than our own species is indeed marginalized so, yeah, it's not surprising to me. And it's becoming more and more normal of a mindset. We don't even question it. No, we don't. And, and you know, they do. It's well, it's easier for the government to disguise the marginalization of animals than it is to disguise the marginalization of populations of people in this country because the animals can't speak out for themselves and because they could put up, as I said, this facade of. Yellowstone National Park, um, you know, and the wildness of the Rocky Mountains. And people don't have the ability to question that or, you know, fact check that. Um, And so for many people living, particularly on the East Coast where you are, you know, they, they can go on the National Park website and dream about this wild world out there that frankly doesn't exist. Yeah, we just amu- we just assume it does. Yes, and they and they bet on that, and they be in the federal government and the commercial interests to use it. Now, you know, we've gotten into this before too. It's it's important again, in your view, because well, I I, I suppose I, well I know uh, there are ethical concerns and moral concerns, and um, uh, also just again the heritage component of of our our uh, continent of of our country uh that's those are why many many of the reasons why you you fight so so earnestly and so hard for these causes yeah i think that's right i think like most of us who you know went to school 25 years ago now and worried about environmental stuff it was sort of about the heritage and the culture um having that wildness and that you know, untamed environment, the wilderness, wildness, you know. Um, but I think as you get on and doing this, I really look at the components of the environment and how they're suffering. And, 
And so it, it does become less about, I think, me and how I used to feel when I was younger about wanting to save places that I loved and more about the animals and the individual components of the environment, like, you know, whether it's the actual river or the actual forest um, and like how degrading it is for those things to have to suffer in our world. Well, that's pretty easy, I guess, but well, that that is in a way less uh, selfish, left and a, a little bit more wise. So yeah, that that's the way it should be, I guess. As you do things for a longer period of time, you you get a little bit broader in your perspective, it's not, and it is not just about what you need; it's what you really truly believe is 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 best, is is good. Uh, so yeah, good stuff, Michael Harrison. We didn't even get into what we planned on talking about yet. Um, <laughs> You wanted to talk, I know, about um, the the whole idea of using hunting revenue as the primary way to fund our public lands. Do you still want to discuss that? Yeah, we could talk for about that for a few minutes. I think it's um, a really timely topic for your listeners and for um, the public to start thinking about because we're at a real crossroads um, with how we fund environmental protection and, and, and more importantly, the conservation of our natural places. Uh, I, th I think, you know, we, we've come from a, a time when there were money was fairly flush. It was an important national goal 20, 25 years ago. Uh, parks were, parks were well-funded. Forest service was well-funded. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 even the Bureau of Land Management was sufficiently funded, and there was a good balance, at least at the at the um, management level, of funding the various needs to protect wildlife, protect habitat, for multiple reasons, whether it's for our use, for the animals' use, um, and really that money has dried up more and more because of, well because of administrations like the current one that doesn't want to spend money on anything and wants to kill everything off, but also because of climate change, um, you know, a vast amount of the money that we would have spent on habitat conservation a decade ago is now being consumed many times over by fire protection and wildfire suppression um, and changes in the habitat due to climate change. And so the, while the pool is drying up because government's not spending as much, the amount of money that's available is even short, smaller because of these other priorities. And so we're at this crossroads where, you know, you have an administration now that doesn't want to spend any taxpayer money on natural habitat protection and believes that um, it could be completely funded by um, hunting revenues, that is money that a hunter would pay to a state or a federal wildlife agency to get a permit to go out and shoot an animal, whether for uh, for consumption or for sport. And this is a really scary proposition because hunting revenues has already been used widely as an excuse for not trying to find other funding um, sources. And all the evidence shows that that money isn't going to do anything worthwhile, that the habitat and the populations of animals aren't getting stronger and better. They've been getting worse. And now to say we're going to rely completely on that 
it's really a problem for, for two reasons, really. One, they're obviously killing off the animals um, that make up the habitat, but even more importantly, because it makes it harder for us to restore a natural environment with both predators and non-predator species, because hunters want to get rid of all the predators who might compete with them. And so it just puts our entire conservation ethic and conservation principles into a real tailspin if we want to rely upon all of this money. And what we've seen under the Trump administration and his director, um, his um, secretary of the interior, Ryan Zinke, is like is a complete abandonment of all efforts to fund conservation conservation outside of relying on hunters and that's a big issue for all of us who care about these places and want to have places that you know are wild and balanced you know uh zinke the the uh i'm, I'm gonna use air quotes now geologist <laughs> yes <laughs> did, did you see that on um john oliver he just went at oh my god i i did that is one of the most unbelievable stories right of a guy who's overstating his credentials yeah the secretary of interior called claiming to be a geologist we talked about him at great length the last time you were on the show and i you know what a what a strange sort of troubling person he he is it seems his arrogance and such well you know i took an auto shop class in high school and i changed my oil regularly so i'm definitely a qualified mechanic too, right, so. right oh definitely <laughs> certified certifiable uh, that's right <laughs> uh, so let's uh let's let's get into uh the the whole notion then of national monuments too you wanted to talk about those you don't like them well i not i don't have a problem with any particular monument, but I do have a problem with um, the monument system, I think. And this goes back to what I said a little bit ago about sort of my maturity as an environmental lawyer and a conservationist and an animal rights advocate, is that um, I, I do think monument protection is, is, is focused on protecting places that you and I love or whoever, whoever is promoting that designation loves. And that doesn't necessarily mean that these places are um, the most deservable um, places to protect when it comes to trying to keep places wild or keep animals protected. Um, now, the Bears Ear, which probably a lot of your listeners are aware of because it's been just in social media like crazy the last week or two, uh, this is a monument in Utah that was designated by President Obama uh, in the last few weeks or maybe the last couple months of his presidency. And th that's a little that's a little more sensitive because it's a place of great cultural and spiritual significance to uh, Native Americans. And uh, I think that they have they should fight for the for their own um, reasons to protect places like that. And I certainly support the Native Americans to protect places like that. But uh, most of the monuments in this country are in that category. They're places like, you know, the, the Escalante Staircase or, um, you know, for some, for some time, some of the canyon lands in Utah, um, beautiful places along the seashore. Um, and they're beautiful places. And I, and I understand why people don't want to see them destroyed. But if we're talking about 
protection of habitats and animals in the West, th these designations are, they don't really have any bearing on those issues. They're not, no one did a habitat analysis for bear's ear or for Escalante or any of the others to see if they were important to protect for um, conserving Western habitats. Um, and they also mean that we have a lot of protected lands within the monument system that overall, even though, you know, you hear in the news how, how Trump is diminishing them significantly in size, most of them are not that big in terms of what, you know, wildlife would or, or habitat protection needs are. So it fragments the lands quite a bit. And if you ever looked at a map of the Western United States and just that has overlaid on it all of the monuments, there's just these little spots all over the place and they're not connected. I mean, I, I think if we, we need to protect places that are important to us and beautiful, but I wish we would do so by creating maps that keep habitat intact in large swaths. And the two primary habitats, or maybe three primary habitats in the West, is the uh, sagebrush um, um, uh, sea, which is, you know, there's basically sort of a more drier prairie that occurs in the, um, on the western side of the Rocky Mountains, you know, mainly in eastern Colorado, Utah, Nevada, um, por portions of Idaho, Montana, and, and Oregon keeping those things intact and non-commercialized, keeping the prairie lands on the eastern side of the Rocky Mountains where the bison used to roam, northern Dakota, eastern Montana, southern Dakota, South Dakota, uh, larger portions of that protected. Uh, and then, you know, portions of the interior Rocky Mountains, um, northern um, Colorado, uh, Wyoming, and Montana. And, you know, we just we have just chopped this stuff up so much, um, and it's really you could put as you could keep all the monuments and keep them protected, but we're still going to see a a real devastated loss of wildlife and habitat in the West. And so, I just think that people are putting a lot of energy into this when we we really need to say you know we've really chopped up our land, and if we don't put it back together now then it's all lost, frankly. We're not going to have any space for these animals and for the, the ecosystems that they, that they live in. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. So, so the monuments are, are uh, a patchwork, uh, which doesn't keep or take into consideration when they're being... Uh, set aside and, and protected the habitats that are necessary to sustain our wildlife. That's your main concern with the way monument the monument system is operated and designed. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, some of my uh, colleagues at Friends of Animals you know, take a very adamant position that, well, animals live on them and we need to protect them. Well, you know what? Animals lived in my neighborhood once and they lived in your neighborhood once, and they were displaced. <clears throat> Frankly, um, they're building this massive development just south of my, my home here. And, um, and it's probably going to add, you know, six or 7,000 homes. Frankly, more animals will be displaced from that project and already really have. We saw such an influx of bear 
and um, deer and coyotes into our neighborhood over the last um, year because of the, you know, because they're tearing everything down in that development area. But more animals are going to be displaced from that construction than live in most of these monuments. And I mean mammals, not, you know, insects and maybe birds and those types of things. But 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 I think, yeah, yeah I mean, you could take this hard approach, like animals live there, we need to protect it. But but it's not really, from a, a biological standpoint or an ecological standpoint, a significant um, chunk of habitat while we're allowing oil and gas to just tear apart the large portions of the prairies and the sagebrush sea and the northern Rockies. And is that the concern that those uh, areas of land will be, if not protected um, dif- differently or at all, uh, will be overtaken by the the energy industry as well as uh, for residential use. Those two, Res- cattle. Oh, cattle. For sure. Yes, I think that's right. I think if uh, environmentalists are serious about preserving Western wildlife and habitats, they should focus on working with the states and the federal government about redrawing the maps so that we have areas that we are going to relinquish and areas that we're going to put back together and preserve and keep out industry. And if not, what do we look like? What do we end up looking like on this continent? I think that we end up with, at best, small pockets of heavily protected mammals um, and a lot of animals that we like to shoot and no predators. So like a big zoo again. I really do think so. You know, I just don't see with the population pressures in the West and our increasingly, not just our, um, uh, our, well, it's our ability, I think, to bring water to locations that normally weren't serviced by water and our ability to um, uh, extract resources from areas that used to be considered completely unapproachable because of the remoteness. Um, I just don't see anything that could be protected uh, and won't ultimately have development or commercial pressures on it. And we really have to sit there and say, where can we draw big natural reserves um, where we have a sagebrush sea that crosses multiple state lines and isn't fragmented with industry? And where can we put the prairie back together again? And where can we make a big old chunk sort of taking probably Yellowstone and going out from there that restores the bison's original habitat. And I guess part of your argument, again, is that because that, that is what America is founded on. That's what we claim and we, we embrace as, our, you know, as part of who, what our heritage is. That sort of America, the one you just described. And we, you know, I think that's true, yeah. I think many people still believe that's already true. And that I'm, you know, that they don't understand how fragmented it is. Michael Harris, we're talking with here on the program, a regular contributor to Troubadours and Rock On Tours. 
one of our premier environmental law attorneys in the United States of America, as the, is the director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals. And, uh, yeah, we have several more minutes. We want to talk about something that you find uh, sort of an interesting story. I shared it with you. I'm sure you heard about it, but I asked if you would address the copyright uh, case, PETA, and uh, that uh, uh, the monkey, I think his name was Naruto. Naruto? Uh, yeah, I think that is the way to pronounce his name. What did you think of that? Uh, he, he took selfies a few years back with... Uh, uh, a nature photographer's phone, and uh, they got a lot of attention internationally. And then they were on a Wikimedia site, and and then PETA sued on behalf of the monkey Naruto to uh, for copyright infringement. You know, they want to protect those those photographs for for Naruto, but yeah. the court said no. PETA can't can't uh, do that, and the monkey has no standing. Yeah, the monkey isn't a person under uh, U.S. copyright law is what the courts ultimately found. And um, first of all, I think it's so awesome because the story is actually like the photographer didn't hand the camera to the monkey or show the monkey what to do. He literally had been taking pictures of the monkey's habitat and potentially that monkey at some point and set his equipment down to go do who knows what, you know go to the bathroom or grab a sandwich or something. And that monkey literally took that camera and started taking these selfies. And if you look at the pictures, the monkey looks like he's just totally having a blast and knows what he's up to and what he's doing. And maybe it's the reflection in the camera or something, but he's smiling. It's really awesome. And, um, you know, I think it's a clever lawsuit. I think that there is a lot of um, clever lawsuits out there right now and trying to obtain personhood for animals. And mostly they center around animals in captivity like, um, like you know, orcas at SeaWorld or, or um, up in your part of the woods in New York in particular, there's been a series of cases trying to free chimpanzees who are, you know, sort of kept as pets by people or or by laboratories. And so I think it was clever and really cute. I think, I, I mean, I think most people know that without some change in the statutory law, we're, we're, it's going to be hard to convince a judge to grant personhood status to a, to a, to a non-human animal. Although the biggest argument why they should, of course, is that corporations are human and they're non-human animals. They're not even animals. They're just non-human entities. And so, frankly, I think if you took a cross-segment of any 12 Americans and put them on a jury and gave them the case of a corporation being a person or the case of a of this monkey or a chimpanzee being a person, I would bet you that 99 out of 100 times the animal would win that case over the corporation. But... Um, but the one thing that's unanswered, though, however, is there's also another challenge going on in which someone got the picture that was put on the Internet by this photographer and decided to use it for their own purposes without getting his permission. And their argument is, well, the monkey doesn't have the copyright, but either do you, because under copyright law, a work of art or a photo or or a photograph has to be the production and produced by the person. And so while he may have a right to um, get some compensation for the use of his equipment, 
the argument is is that he's not the copyright holder and he can't profit from this. And so though that case is still in the courts and hasn't been decided. So there's that part too. And then I'll say one last thing because I think you'll find this pretty cool. A few months back, I actually went to this, um, this, um, this lecture called The Law of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, pretty geeky, but basically um, the, per- the point of this lecture is, is that all of the, you could take most of the um, legal dilemmas that we have dealt with in the courts over the last 10 years, and they've all been uh, resolved in Star Trek episodes. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is the one where Data, who, who Data is you know, obviously is not a human, he's a, he's a robot, a cyborg, whatever you, know, you want to call him, but he wrote a book, and he what was then had to go to court with the publisher over whether he was entitled to the copyright and the money from it. And he lost because he wasn't a person. So um, <laughs> this case was used as an example of how Star Trek had dealt with this very issue in, in, in one of the episodes. Oh, man. And they haven't evolved that far ahead in fiction, even, in that fiction <laughs> world. Um, doctor, uh, doctor uh, what's his name? Not doctor. Um, one of our professors, I don't think he was a doctor, Stephen Weiss, uh, he's yes. been fighting uh, this cause for a while, too. I remember watching his documentary uh, recently um, on HBO, Personhood for, for Chimpanzees, basically. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we've talked about that in the past. We'll, we'll get into that again some more into the f- future. You have a different take on how it should be done, and uh, maybe next time we can get, in, get into that uh, analysis. But sure, that would be great. I... Uh, I, I really valued uh, your your insights and uh, the really you know clear way you you uh, guide us through the the otherwise complicated world of environmental law and and uh, wildlife law. Thank you so much, Michael. Well, I appreciate being on your show, and um, maybe we should start bringing out your listeners and going out in the wild with us here in the West and give them hands-on approach. To That's it, a, so. let's work on a program like that. I would love it. That would be awesome. So, and guess what picture I'm going to use uh, for this episode? I'm, I think I'm going to use uh, Naruto's and see if we get sued. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'll defend you on that one. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you, Attorney Michael Harris. Thank you, EW. Take Bye-bye. care. Nothing like you has ever been seen before. Nothing like you existed in days of yore. Never were lips so kissable. Never were eyes so bright I can't believe it's possible That you bring me such delight Nothing can match The rapture of your embrace Nothing can catch The magic that's in your face You're like a dream come true Something completely new Nothing like you has ever been seen before Nothing like you Nothing like you has ever been mine before Kisses I've known None so divine before No one has your magnificence Who can describe your charms I'd like to make my residence Forever in your arms I never knew How wonderful life could be No one but you Could ever do this to me Call me a fool in love One thing I'm certain of Nothing like you has ever been seen before Nothing like you, nothing like you, nothing like you.
nothing like you has ever been seen before. You're like a dream come true, something completely new, nothing like you has ever been seen before. Just to call me a fool in love, one thing I'm certain of, nothing like you has ever been seen before. Nothing like you. You're all I ever dreamed and wanted. Nothing like you. I never knew that you existed. Two Indian Morality Tales The Virtue of Compassion There once was a hunter from the city of Varanasi on the sacred Ganges River. He went out to shoot antelope with his bow and a full quiver of poison arrows. When he was far out into the forest, he spotted a herd of antelope and shot his arrows at them, missing every one. One of his arrows, however, did hit an ancient tree where a kindly old parrot lived. As soon as the arrow struck, the old tree began to wither and die. But the parrot, who had been born in that very tree, and spent all his life there, refused to abandon it. The parrot remained in the tree, not even leaving to find new food to eat. As the tree withered, so did the parrot. The bird just remained in the very spot where it was born, motionless and mourning in silence. The sky god Indra looked down on the faithful parrot and decided to visit the, bl- the bird taking the human form of a noble Brahmin. Indra, in this guise, asked the bird, Why don't you leave this tree? It is almost completely dead. But the parrot replied, I cannot leave this tree. I was born here. For my entire life, this tree has given me a home, food to eat, and refuge from my enemies. How could I leave such a faithful friend? But Indra replied, It is you, O parrot, who is a faithful friend. Deeply moved by the parrot's loyalty, Indra touched the withered tree, and it was restored to life. Indra then told the parrot, I have brought the tree back to life, but it is really you, the faithful parrot, that kept it alive. With this story of friendship, faithfulness, and the virtue of compassion, Everyone who hears it will be blessed. Everyone who tells it will be blessed twice. Gotama and the Elephant There once was a sage named Gotama who found a motherless baby elephant and took care of it. He grew to love this elephant and protected it until it became a mighty beast. Indra was watching all this from heaven and came to earth in the form of a king. In this mortal guise, he tried to take the elephant away from Gotama, but Gotama implored him not to separate him from the elephant who was indispensable to him as a companion. It carried food and water. But the king replied that such a handsome animal should be the property of a king, not of some sage living in the forest. Gotama replied, 
that he did not consider the elephant property or a possession, but rather his oldest and dearest friend. The king then tried to buy the elephant, offering Gautama gold, silver, cattle, beautiful maidens, even a palace. Gautama told him, Even if you go to the realm of Yama and take with me, take me with you, you will not be able to take my elephant away from me. Indra replied, Those who go down to the land of the death, ruled by Yama, are sinful and slaves of their desires. Gautama replied, There is much truth to be found in the land of the dead. There the weak are equal to the powerful and can even overcome them. Then the king said, I am too powerful and too holy to go to the land of Yama. Gautama said, That may well be, but even if you go up to the highest heaven ruled by Indra, you shall never have my elephant. This persisted until the king said, What if I go to the palace of Brahma the creator, and he tells me that the elephant is mine? The sage laughed and said, Brahma the creator knows all things and loves all things. Your power means nothing to him. But the power of love that I feel for my elephant is more powerful than wealth, weapons, or anything else in the universe. I know who you are. You are Indra, who tests the wise. Indra was so delighted by the faithfulness of Gautama to his elephant that he offered the sage any request. Gautama could have asked for riches or property, but all he asked for was to remain with his elephant. Indra told him, You need not ask for wisdom. You already have that. As for riches, you are the richest man on earth, he who knows the value of a good friend. Years later, when Gautama was ready to die, Indra took him and the elephant alive together to the highest heaven. And he who hears this story will be blessed. He who tells it will be twice blessed.
I went into the toaster to fetch a small piece of olive bread as it popped up and burned my forefinger knuckle. A tiny scar, probably for life, indelible. Does that not make this a significant moment? Only I know where this small mark originates. And... The warm olives smell deeply delicious and remind me of my home. My hero zero, such a funny little hero, but till you came along, counted on our fingers and toes, and now you're here to stay. Nobody really knows how wonderful you are Why we could never reach the star Without you, Zero, my hero Zero What's so great about a zero? It's nothing, ain't it? Sure. Nothing alone But a place of zero after a one You got yourself a ten And two when you When you run out of digits You can start all over again See how important that is That's why with only ten digits Including zero We can count as high as we could ever go Forever Towards infinity No one ever guessed that But you could try With ten billions zeros From the cavemen till the heroes Who invented you they count it on their fingers and toes And sticks and stones But now you're here to stay And nobody really knows How wonderful you are Why we could never reach the star Without you, Zero My hero Zero How wonderful you are Place one zero after any number 
And you've multiplied that number by ten See how easy that is? Place two zeros after any number And you've multiplied it by one hundred See how simple that is? Place three zeros after any number And you've multiplied it by one thousand Etc, etc Ad infinitum Ad astra Forever and ever With zero My hero How wonderful you And there you have it, episode 269 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our regular contributor, the great environmental law attorney and our good friend, Michael Harris. I'd like to thank our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise and the Indian sages he tapped into for his readings this go-round. I also like to thank my aunt, Maria Mandarano. Thank you so much for all the direction and love over the years. And I also like to thank the brilliant jazz artist and friend, Bob DeRoe. I like to thank these musical artists as well. Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Boone, Miles Davis, Damien Alokate, Terrence Blanchard and Brantford Marr, Solace 2. Until next week, enjoy this one. Thanks for listening.